Hello and welcome to the Old Time Radio Forever broadcast. I'm your host, Matt Perry. Join us weekly as we explore the golden era of American radio through the dramas, westerns, mysteries, and comedies that shaped the golden age. Be sure to give us a thumbs up or a five-star review on all of the podcast directories that you may use. Many of you might not know that my everyday job, well, I'm a (laughs) jack of all trades, but I'm a middle school history teacher along with a newspaper columnist and a football broadcaster for the local high school. My love has always been history. I think that's why I love old time radio so much. One of the most powerful ways to teach young children and adults alike historical events is by eyewitness accounts, whether that's written, watched on television, or listened to from old radio recordings. There's so many examples of this that I use in my American history classroom. Before media, audio and visual media, I use primary source documents. When we move into the Civil War era, diaries, photographs, things of that nature. But it's in the 20th century that we can begin to use radio programs and videos to teach and to transport people into a different time. The most powerful videos I know of are of September the 11th, 2001. But with this being the golden era of radio that we deal with here on Old Time Radio Forever, there's a lot of iconic radio broadcasts. On this day, December the 7th, 2019, I thought it fitting to remember the 78th anniversary of the Japanese attack on the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. Instead of piecing together multiple bulletins or things of that nature, I thought it would be quite interesting to listen to Sunday evening broadcasts. The nation was reeling, obviously. And from about 3 p.m. Eastern on, radio bulletins were going crazy over all of the major networks. With the networks scrambling for answers, the show went on in many aspects. My favorite show, The Great Gildersleeve, had a live broadcast that night, and they briefly mentioned the attacks at Pearl Harbor. What I want to share with you tonight is from NBC. It is a roundtable discussion about what the attack meant to the American people. Transport yourself back to this Sunday evening, December the 7th, 1941. You do not know the horrors that are to come in the Second World War. All you know is that thousands of Americans have just been killed by a surprise attack in the Hawaiian Islands. So tonight, we go back to that December the 7th, 1941, for a national broadcast company 
roundtable discussion on the attack of Pearl Harbor. This is Old Time Radio Forever. Japan declared war on the United States without warning. Warplanes bombed Manila and Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. The National Broadcasting Company, since early this afternoon, when it flashed the word of this war attack, has been broadcasting numerous bulletins and eyewitness accounts. NBC's own foreign news staff in the Far East, in Europe, and in South America have been radioing or broadcasting the latest news reports as they have heard. The NBC newsroom, with its services, the AP, UP, and INS, is constantly interrupting all programs and will remain open on a 24-hour basis to bring you the latest news of the war. President Roosevelt will address the joint session of Congress tomorrow about 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The National Broadcasting Company will broadcast this important message. And now NBC's famous commentators have been gathered at San Francisco, Chicago, Washington, and here in the newsroom in New York to discuss by two-way radio the latest news. In New York, we have H.B. Kaltenborn, William Hillman, and Max Jordan. In Washington, Ernest K. Lindley of Newsweek, Morton Beatty of Associated Press, and Wilfred Fleischer of the Herald Tribune, formerly of the American, published the American published Tokyo Advertiser, and perhaps Borkish in Washington. In Chicago is Edward Tomlinson, NBC's South American expert. In San Francisco, Upton Close, Far Eastern Affairs commentator. We'll have a, a moment or two from each of these gentlemen, and then we'll have our roundtable discussion. First, Mr. Carpenter, will you start it off? The thing that impresses me most is the comprehensive character of the Japanese attack. Certainly, it was not to be expected that Japan's plans would be as far-reaching as they have been demonstrated to be. We may not even have all the reports in. But listen to the number of different points against which Japan has already launched attacks. She traveled distance of 2,000 miles to reach the Hawaiian Islands. She bombed the Pan-American air base at Guam. She has attacked, according to the word that has just come from the White House, Davao, on the island of Mindanao in the Philippines. She has attacked Baguio, the military camp in the northern part of the island of Luzon. Japan has conducted an air raid on Singapore. She has landed 10 ships at Dutch Borneo and has landed a force there and is attacking by land, by sea, and by air. Those ships that were reported by the president as coming into the Gulf of Siam have landed troops in North Malaya and presumably they will endeavor to strike toward Singapore. All these things, in addition to an air raid on Hong Kong, made from a Japanese base within China, carried out within the first 24 hours of Japan's attack. Thank you, Mr. Falkenborn. Uh, excuse me, we'll come back in just a moment. We want to go along now to have a word from Borkage in Washington.
Now, this is what the statement says, and I'm quoting directly. It should be emphasized that the message to Congress has not yet been written, and its tenor will, of course, depend uh, on further information received between 11 o'clock tonight and noon tomorrow. Further news is coming in all the time. And, of course, we'll report it all the time. Thank you, Borkage. Uh, we'll call in now Edward Tomlinson in Chicago. My, my field, of course, has to do with Latin America. And I think the very fact that two of the first countries to declare war on Japan are Latin American countries suggests how they look upon this conflict. Of course, first of all, the real danger, the first great danger in this hemisphere is sabotage of the Panama Canal. This would be both important to Japan and to Germany. Naturally, supplies going from the eastern coast of the United States will play a tremendous part in the Pacific conflict. Then also, if Hitler could possibly bottle us up in the Pacific, that would give him an easy hand over in the Atlantic. Then there are two other dangers I think that should be kept in mind. That is sabotage in Western South America. Sabotage of mines that produce some of the most important strategic products for this country. Copper in Chile and Peru, tin in Bolivia, tungsten in Bolivia. And keep in mind that there are thousands of Japanese in every one of these countries up and down this tremendous Pacific coast of Latin America. I think it's well to bear in mind that 8,000 miles of Latin America border on the Pacific Ocean. From Mexicali, Mexico, to the Straits of Magellan, is 8,000 miles, air miles. And then, too, on the Atlantic, it's to be remembered that it is 7,500 miles from Miami, Florida, to Buenos Aires. It's also well to keep in mind that this is tremendously important to Hitler. Uh, his plan from the very first, naturally, has been to engage us in the Pacific so that he could have a free hand in the Atlantic. Uh, hello, Ed Tomlinson. Uh, if you can hear us, excuse me for interrupting. We'll get back a little later. We want to have just about a minute from each of the gentlemen. All right, right now I'm going to call on Max Jordan here in the NBC Newsroom in New York. Uh, those of us who have witnessed the Nazi aggression in various countries in Europe are not surprised by what has happened this afternoon. It's Hitlerism, true to form. But Tokyo has acted more clumsily than Berlin, I think. They cannot really have been at ease when they struck this morning. Obviously, they were acting under pressure. Let's not forget that Captain Fritz Wiedemann, Hitler's confidant, has arrived in Shanghai only a few days ago with latest instructions from Berlin. From Hitler's point of view, Japan's entry into this war could no longer be delayed. Unrest all over Europe is growing. The Russian campaign is a failure. Oil supplies are dwindling fast. Relief is urgent, and relief can only come from Hitler's point of view if America's industrial aid to Britain is curtailed. For in the end, it is industrial, economic power, and resources which will win this war. By forcing Japan to attack the United States, Hitler has hoped to distract attention from the Atlantic. It means diversion, a splitting of the democratic front as the Nazis see it, but they are mistaken. Red Army, no doubt, would strike against Japan from the rear. Japan cannot win. And now down to Washington for a word from A.T. Morgan Beatty. 
The attacks on Hawaii and other Pacific outposts are a mere curtain raiser for the Battle of the Pacific. That's the war the strategists have been planning for 50 years or more. In all probability, the first attacking Japanese forces are suicide squadrons in the strategist's way of looking at things. The large section uh, of the Japanese fleet was held elsewhere. It would never have been able to escape detection by our major fleet, fleet units if it had been set out. The Hawaiian attack came from dive bombers. That is significant. Dive bombers have short range. The Japanese craft are probably similar to or copies of the German Junker type. That means they have a range of no more than 500 to 600 miles and carry about two tons of bombs. The most important strategic factor in the Japanese strategy is the complete cooperation with Adolf Hitler. For years, ever since the Japanese seized Manchukuo, the Germans have been getting closer and closer to this power in the Pacific. It was a natural uh, thing for these have-not nations to get together. German technicians have been putting up synthetic oil plants all over Japan. They have shown the Japanese how to make uh, and use ersatz material. But what we didn't know until now is the extent of their military cooperation. The bold stroke against Hawaii has more than a tinge of German strategy about it. And the thinking of American transports looks like joint submarine actions between these powers. How about just a word, uh, Mr. Fleischer, from, uh, from uh, rather Mr. Beatty, from Mr. Fleischer. He did a long time. The Japanese chose national suicide when they launched into a war against the United States. Japanese leaders and the Japanese people know they have no chance to win such a conflict with their meager resources pitted against the great resources of this nation. They chose this course because they refused to surrender their doctrine of conquest. They had the choice of knuckling under by a slow process under economic pressure or of fighting. They recklessly chose war in what is probably the most defiant undertaking in modern history because they do not possess the strength which Hitler had when he unloosed the present European war. The Japanese cannot count on Germany's active assistance in this war by virtue of the Axis Pact. For that pact only compelled Germany to come to Japan's help in the event of Japan being attacked by the United States. In view of the flagrant Japanese aggression against America, there can be no question of Germany having to come to Japan's assistance. Whatever part the Germans may play will not be because of any commitment. It seems likely that President Roosevelt's peace appeal to the Japanese emperor never reached the emperor and certainly was not known to the Japanese people. That was the case when President Roosevelt sent a message to Emperor Hirohito at the time of the bombing of the Panay, a message which was never published by the Japanese press. Right, um, Mr. Fleischer, and now just a minute, if you please, from Bill Hillman here in New York. Well, gentlemen, my feeling is that Japan's attack represents a major change in Hitler's general plan of war. It means that Japan is being used as a spearhead, as a sort of an advance attack on the American arsenal. After all, America has become the main stumbling block, not only to Japan's desire to dominate the Far East, but Hitler's aim to conquer Russia, Britain, and the world. As Hitler finds it more and more difficult to uh, knock out Russia and to defeat Britain, it's essential that supplies to these two countries stop. Both are being sustained by America morally and by supplies. Therefore, says Hitler, let's cut that supply line. He cuts this line by egging Japan onto war. It is my feeling, based on some knowledge, 
that Japan hesitated for a long time until Germany would give some concrete evidence that uh, she was going to back Japan. How has she done this? There are two very important factors which I'll state briefly. The German air attacks in Russia have not been on a scale as large as in previous campaigns. Has Germany sent any airplanes to Japan? Furthermore, submarine sinkings in the Atlantic have been small recently. Has Germany sent submarines and war vessels to Japan? It appears that she has, in an effort to bolster up Japan's attacks on American supply lines to Britain and to Russia. Right, Bill Hillman. Now, just a minute, if you please, from Ernest Lindley in Washington. Three points seem to me to be worth underlining. The first is that war could have come in no other way which would have so surely guaranteed the maximum of national unity. The Chicago Tribune, Senator Wheeler, and other spokesmen of isolationism are saying now that everything must be subordinated to victory in this war. Politics has vanished in Washington tonight. The second point is that even though war has come, invaluable time has been won by the prolongation of the negotiations until now. We and our associates in the Pacific are in incomparably better position to meet the attack than we were two or three or four months ago. Those of us who have followed the negotiations by keeping in touch with our own high officials know that the President and Secretary Hall never went on the assumption that the Japanese were bluffing. They always hoped that they would back down, reconsider, but they were prepared to meet it if necessary. The third point is the question about the President's address to Congress tomorrow. It will ask Congress to recognize a state of war, but will it be merely a state of war with Japan or with the entire action? Donald Nelson, executive director of staff, went on the air tonight and was said with the White House approval, so announced, and pointed out that although the attack physically came from Japan, it was an attack from the Axis. Senator Pepper and other people who represent the administration very clearly indicate that the president would like to do it all up at once and get a single declaration of war. Thank you, Mr. Thank you very much, Mr. Lindley. Now we're back in the newsroom. We have 15 minutes, and we'll ask you eight gentlemen to discuss the questions among yourselves and all of us. First, here is Mr. Kaufman. Uh, well, I have this question in my mind. We all of us seem to agree that Japan is going to be defeated. She's committed national suicide, that she's stuck with the problem she can't solve. But we haven't had any explanation as to what our strategy is going to be to accomplish that purpose. Now, I'd like to ask Mr. Beatty, who's been in touch with the leaders of our Army and Navy, as to what he can tell us about what our strategy is likely to be to meet this very broad-scale attack, which Japan has delivered at six different points here on the opening day of the war. Mr. Beatty. their supply line beyond the uh, point to which that fleet they've got has been organized. For instance, uh, they have a hemisphere over there extending from Sakhalin Island inward to Lake Baikal in Russia and down to Canton, China. And that fleet has been organized to defend that hemisphere. They've gone almost a thousand miles beyond that now into Indochina. So the natural strategy in answer to that situation is to cut that supply line so they cannot uh, do as much damage in uh, Burma as they would like. And uh, uh, along that line, you will see, just now we had a bulletin from Singapore saying that the Japanese troops have succeeded in landing in northern Malaya. Well, you see, their effort there is to get at that oil in Burma. Does that uh, take care of Yes. Uh, I also have in mind that 500-mile trip in the Yellow Sea between Hong Kong and Kabiti, where it would seem 
me, we have an excellent chance of cutting Japan's supply lines, linking up with all these forces that have now deployed in the South Pacific. To me, that's the most surprising thing, that Japan has dared to put so much of her strength into the South Pacific so far from her base. I want to ask Bill Hillman whether he can talk a little both on this strategic question and perhaps say a few words about the competitive strength of Japan and the United States. Well, uh, Tom, I'd rather stick to the strategic uh, plan for the moment. I think the essential thing is to defeat the Japanese Navy. Uh, most of the discussion so far, most of the indications were that we would cut supply lines with the Japanese. I think the Japanese are aware of that. I think the main problem is to get the Japanese fleet out to fight. Now, uh, it's very significant that the attacks on Hawaii and the Philippines apparently have been made by small suicidal units. Uh, is the uh, Japanese fleet to come out? Uh, some way must be uh, uh, devised to get them out, to lure them out, because if Japan is going to play the role of Italy, that is, their fleet, uh, the Italian fleet has uh, stayed in uh, Mediterranean waters very close to their own shores and not dared to challenge the British, and when they did come out, they were always smacked very hard. Our purpose is somehow to lure the Japanese fleet out. Otherwise, no matter how many supply lines we uh, cut, uh, it's going to be a long war until we smash that uh, Japanese fleet. Uh, gentlemen, uh, may I ask you to keep your responses as short as you can, and I'm um, advised that Upton Close has just joined our round table. So out there in San Francisco, Mr. Close, would you care to add your late reaction to the situation? Go ahead, please. Hello, Upton Close in San Francisco. Go ahead, please. Steve, Mr. Close isn't with us for the moment, so Mr. Cottonball, will you carry on? Yes, uh, I should like to get from someone in Washington, either Lindley or Bockage, what they feel about the competitive strength of the United States and Japan in this new war in the Pacific. This is, uh, this is Lindley. Uh, of course, our Navy is a third to or more stronger than Japan, but a good part of our Navy is now in the Atlantic. Especially a lot of the destroyers and cruisers that are very useful for convoy purposes and might be needed now to keep open our long supply lines to the far Pacific. Likewise, uh, in the air, undoubtedly we have superiority in number in, in our new types and quality, but a great many of our planes are elsewhere have gone across to the British and to the Russians. I might point out that that South Pacific area, as Mr. Caltonborn indicated, is particularly suited for the use of air power as long as you can keep bases in the Philippines and Singapore and the Dutch East Indies, you can crisscross that area with air power, and that combined with submarines ought to be able to do considerable damage to Japanese supply lines. Thanks, uh, Mr. Lindsay. I'm going to ask Mike Jordan, who's sitting at my side, whether he can give us a word about what the likely reaction in Europe is going to be to this new development. I think, Mr. Cockborn, that the uh, sequence of events that uh, you and I and Bill Hellman and all of us have witnessed from the very beginning in Europe is now very logical. It started uh, with the anti-Comintern pact five years ago. Once more, I should like to stress the fact that Japanese aggression is the ultimate consequence of this evolution, which has now led to a point where strong Nazi pressure seems to be determining the issue. Hitler is hard-pressed on all fronts. He needs relief. Otherwise, he would not have taken the chance of letting his Axis partner in the Far East lead the attack, thus losing the opportunity of denouncing the United States as the aggressor. 
this is another proof of his testament straight. But all of this means that the Axis is now exhausting itself in a supreme strategy of worldwide terroristic intimidation. The strategy will fail, and that's why I think that the people in Europe today will be elated by the news that has come from Japan. Uh, this is Bill Hillman interrupting here, and I understand Upton Close is on at San Francisco, and I'd like to ask uh, Upton Close, who's a very sharp authority on the Far East, just what he feels is the main strategic problem. I think everybody's asking, as Mr. Collinborn asked, what can America do uh, to not only to take the deal, not only uh, in a defensive way, but what can she do in the offensive to meet this Japanese attack? Well, thank you, Bill Hillman. Uh, the uh, main defensive problem divides into two parts. The first part, of course, is to cut the Japanese lines of communications in the south, south of Hong Kong. And there it would seem that the British and we certainly have the Japanese on the hip, so to speak. We, uh, we have them at our advantage. But uh, after all, that's only uh, taking care of the South Pacific. The big problem to end the war is what we do about Japan front on. And we can't tell what to do about that till we know where Russia stands, Phil. Russia is at the key point in this thing. Yesterday, I met uh, Litvinov as he uh, landed here at Treasure Island, and I asked him point blank what would be Russia's position in case America and Japan got into war, and he completely evaded the issue. He gave me to wonder just what's up. Now, you know, I remember having been in Manchuria when uh, the Japanese leaped upon uh, China in 1931, and uh, I found out afterwards that Mr. Stalin knew in advance of that Japanese action. The Japanese had told him what they were going to do and the night they were going to do it. But they had never told us, or the British, or the Chinese. And I looked in Mr. Litvinov's eye yesterday. I wondered whether he knew before he arrived here yesterday what would happen today. But anyhow, our strategy against Japan proper must depend upon whether or not our planes from our new air bases in the Aleutian Islands can plan to shuttle back and forth over Japan, reloading in Vladivostok on the other side, and attacking the Japanese naval bases first. Possibly, if that don't work, we'll depend on that, Bill. Hello, up and close. Hello, up and yes. close. I wonder whether uh, Wilfred Fleischer, who was formerly of the uh, Tokyo Advertisement Tokyo, could have something to add to that. Fleischer? Well, I he think, ought to. I think we shouldn't overlook the effect that the bombing of Japanese cities would have on their population. I believe it would sow widespread panic among a people who have never tasted invasion or war at home. I think the Japanese cities are very vulnerable to air attacks. They have no adequate air shelters, if any at all, and there's been a shortage of water, which would make it very difficult to extinguish any fires. Yeah. This was... Uh, this was Bill and Wilfred, we just have a dispatch in here. It came into the uh, North Hollywood NBC listening station. It's about the first indication we have of how this thing's going over in Japan. And that interests us old-timers like Wilfred and myself. Uh, it runs this by Premier General Tojo. Tonight promised the Japanese people victory in the war with the United States and Great Britain. The broadcast heard by NBC's West Coast shortwave listening post. Tojo declared Japan is fighting for self-existence. Uh, he used heartening words to his people. In 2,600 years of history, Japan has never lost a war. 
I hereby promise you that final victory will be that of Japan. We have nothing to fear in this war. And he said the kingdom of the Mikado had made every effort to settle the Pacific problem peacefully and failed and declared then the rise or fall of East Asia depends upon this fight. Japan cannot help from fighting when we know we are actually on the crossroads of our future. The uh, speech is heard by the boys at the listening post. It did not include any detailed reasons for the war on the United States and Great Britain. Uh, up Sojo and close. confidence. Up and close. Yes, uh, We've been a pretty well-behaved group so far. But I want to venture to differ on one decisive point from several of my colleagues, and that is this. I do not believe that Hitler was primarily responsible for Japan taking the last think that it would help Hitler. I'm inclined to think that that point can be debated. After all... Yes. Japan's value was practically as great as her military value. Now, what do you fellas think about that? Well, suppose well, Hans, uh, I have ideas suppose... on that. Yes. Yeah, I've been trying no. to get in on that, too. Of course, I listened to these boys say that the sudden attack without a declaration of war is a typical Hitler strategy. I'd like to point out that the Japanese invented that strategy, and Hitler learned it from them. Quite right. That's absolutely right. So, Bill Hillman, that's absolutely very pointed. Well, yeah. Mr. And Mr. I'd Mr. like to point out one more thing, Bill, before I'm cut off here for good, and that is that I believe that once Japan is in a full naval war with the United States, Hitler will write Japan off as a complete liability of no further use whatever to, to Hitler. Uh, I think you'll find that Hitler will now begin to try every possible means he has to woo the Chinese, whom he believes are good fighting stuff. If he could get them, they'd be some use to him. Japan's now tied up for good. She's no good. She's just a liability. She's in the rest. Here's a point, Mr. Carltonborn, that I'd like to make. Would you identify yourself, sir, please? This is Bockett talking in Washington. You know, Bismarck spoke about the imponderables of war, and I have a feeling there's something more in this philosophy than we've discovered. Uh, you notice in that uh, statement of the president that uh, it was stated that what went into that message might be changed by information received between 11 tonight and noon tomorrow. And I must want to say this. Uh, in wartime, secret documents are open. I talked yesterday with a Japanese official, as the understanding was, which was off the record, but I believe now it's on the record. And that man, frankly, admitted to me that Japan could not win. So I think there may be a card up someone else's sleeve. Let's look for an imponderable somewhere. That's all right, Bobby. May I have a word? I'd like again to call attention to this thing I've been talking about all day, and that is that the Japanese civil government, as represented by its ministers, its ambassador, and its consular officials abroad, was not any more aware that this was going to happen than was our own Navy or government. Did you want it, Mr. Limbley? Complete coup sprung by the military and a small section of the Navy on us and on their own government. This exactly is the thing was pulled off on China in 1931. Just time to say goodbye, so a uh, word from Mr. Lindley if he wants it in Washington. I'm just going to say the feeling is here. I couldn't reduce it to statistics, but uh, we've been moving at half speed on defense and everything else. And if we move that up to full speed, we might have enough of a margin to take care of Japan handily as well as the Atlantic Ocean. Amen. All right, I guess that's amen all around, gentlemen. You want to add a word, Mr. Jordan and Mr. Hillman? How about Mr. Beatty down there in Washington? We haven't heard much from you. Uh, this is Beatty. Uh, I'm at it. That is, the purpose of our fleet out there is to destroy the opposition, ultimately, but there may be a little sparring before we get down to that point. I'd agree on that point, Phil Hillman. 
And there are nods all around, and I think the clock says it's time to conclude our conversation. Sorry, Ed Tomlinson in Chicago. We didn't get a chance to visit you again. NBC's famous commentators have been gathered in front of microphones at San Francisco, Chicago, Washington, and New York to discuss by two-way radio the latest news and its implications. May we remind you that we will remain open on a 24-hour basis to bring you the latest developments in the war, and again, that President Roosevelt will address the joint session of Congress tomorrow about 12.30 p.m., a half an hour afternoon, Eastern Standard Time, and National Broadcasting Company will bring you this important message. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thank mm-hmm. you.